Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, you can be turning to Genesis chapter 37, uh, verse 12. That's where we were last time I was with you. But while you're turning there, I've got a question for you. Where were you 50 days ago? Fifty days ago was Resurrection Sunday. Fifty days ago was the Feast of First fruits. Fifty days ago, the priest would take sheaves of barley that had been gathered in the field and march them up into the tabernacle or up into the temple, and they would wave them before the Lord as a thanksgiving offering for all that God had brought in the harvest. And this is what we just celebrated, Jesus, that bread of life that comes down out of heaven. But there's a second feast. The wheat would mature 50 days later seven weeks later, and you would count 50 days. The Greek word for that is Pentecost. And 50 days from the resurrection, God would pour His Spirit out upon the world, and the church was born. 3,000 people were saved that day. And God moved mightily and has been moving ever since as He indwells His church with His Holy Spirit. And we celebrate that this morning on Pentecost Sunday. Amen? Amen. Amen. So here we are now is our tradition to go through uh, a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We're in the book of Genesis, and we made it through chapter 37 last time I was with you. Uh, I took a pause last week. Frankie covered the pulpit and did an admirable job. I gave him a really tricky chapter. As if you've been here, you know, okay? But we're going to pick up where I left off, which is kind of backing up in your Bible a little bit, to chapter 37, verse 12. As you remember, chapter 37 begins with verse 2. This is the history of Jacob. This is the story. This is the genealogy. These are the generations, the descendants of Jacob. So really, it's not about Jacob, but it's about what follows after Jacob, which is his family, the 12 sons, the tribes of Israel, and it especially focuses on his son Joseph. And that's what we had last time we were together, an introduction in chapter 37, verses 1 through 11, as to who Joseph is. And then Frankie picked up with another son last week, Judah, another thing that followed after Jacob, another issue within the 12 tribes. And we're going to touch on that a little bit as we get going here. But we remember that in the last time we were here, the beginning of chapter 37, Joseph, his youngest son, and then Benjamin was born. Now he's younger, but he's the son of his old age. He's his beloved son. Uh, he, he blessed his son. He gave him a special robe that was unique that everybody would know. That's Joseph when Joseph walked in the room. Look at the coat he's wearing. And uh, he gave him charge over his flocks and even the other brothers. And then Joseph had these dreams. 
And in these dreams, one of them where they're out harvesting and the sheaves, like the barley sheaf, right, the wheat sheaf, the sheaves were all bowing down to him as he stood upright. And he says, that, brothers, that's you guys. And they got insulted. They didn't like that. Then he had another dream. And in that, it was the sun and the moon and the stars. And they're all bowing down to him. And people start calling him a dreamer. And they don't like the dreams that he is sharing with them. As we'll see clearly as we go through the rest of the balance of the book of Genesis, these dreams were from God. God was speaking through Joseph to his brothers. God was speaking through Joseph to Israel and the tribes of Israel, his plan of redemption to bring many alive as it is this day, Joseph will say at the end of the book here. But here we have all these things, and the brothers hated him. Couldn't even say a nice thing to him. It says in verse 11, his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in his mind. He molded over. He pondered it. Much like Jesus, when, or like I should say Mary, when Christ was born to her, and the prophet uh, Simeon, or the angel, told uh, it's, it's going to cause... Uh, division in Israel, it's going to pierce your soul, and it says, and Mary pondered these things in her heart. What's the meaning of all of this? You know, here we are, Pentecost Sunday, and we look at the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and His pouring His Spirit out on to a world for those who would receive Him, and you ask yourself, what is the meaning of all this? And, and so often with Pentecost, we get this idea of Pentecostalism, Okay, this idea of behaving as the church behaved on the day of Pentecost. Obviously, it's biblical, and yet often it's mischaracterized or abused even in the church as some kind of exuberant expression of, of whatever it is you feel moved to do at the moment. And yet what we see is that the Holy Spirit, a gentleman, does work on the hearts of men and women, does move in the body of Christ that he might bless not only the body, but the world through the church. And there should be some fire. There should be some evidence. There should be some testimony that you do know Jesus Christ. You are born again. You are indwelt with his Holy Spirit, and it's being manifest in your life, each one differently as God would decide to have it. But now here is Jacob, and he's thinking about his young son who's having some dreams, dreams from God, clearly, Holy Spirit working in Joseph's life. And he wonders, what does this mean? And quite often, this is something I think that's very encouraging for us as a church, as the Holy Spirit moves on one or another of us, we would look to that, we would look to the the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, and we always know that it's going to bring about the fruit of the Spirit, if it is the Spirit of God. It's going to be love and joy and peace, kindness and goodness, patience, godliness, self-control. It's always going to look like that, but it's always going to be for the edifying and the building up of the body of Christ and bringing testimony of Jesus Christ. It always points us to Jesus. And as we go through Genesis, we're looking at Jesus in Genesis. And here's Jacob, a dreamer himself, has a boy who's a dreamer. And the dream that, if you remember, started this whole thing with Jacob at Bethel. He was running from his brother who wanted to kill him. 
And God gave him a vision of a ladder going to heaven with angels going up and down on it. The Lord at the top. And God spoke to him and says, I'm going to bring you back to this place. And yet, we know it would be over 20 years before he did come back to that place. And in the middle of all that, a lot of water under the bridge. <laughs> a lot of grief, but he also came back with the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, And answered prayer, but you get the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And a lot of times, you ponder that. Take it, listen to it, heed it, put it in your heart, and look for confirmation. Is this of God? Is it filled with the fruit of the Spirit? Is it bringing about glorifying Jesus Christ? Or is it something else? Well, it says that his father kept the matter in mind. Now, verse 12, we kind of jump back into the story. The story up in chapter uh, or in 37, verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. He had been sent out to check on them, how are they doing with the flocks, and he brought back a bad report. And then we get this little background information, verse 12, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Okay? So he's an overseer. He's got some kind of authority. He's got this cloak, this robe that is some way significant. A lot of people interpret it as long-sleeved, which is kind of what royalty or administration would wear. But at any rate, it represented the idea that he was to be um, overseeing the brothers. And now he gets sent uh, to see how the brothers are doing, okay, feeding their flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, quick side note, Israel, it's not Jacob, right? The name's interchangeable, but when God refers to him as Israel, generally it's because he's walking in the spirit, not walking according to the flesh, okay? So in the spirit, uh, Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, and I, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am, okay? And so your brothers, they're out there. I wonder what they're doing. I wonder how they're taking care of business. Why don't you go out and check on them, right? It's interesting as we've been following through all the typology, all the pictures of Joseph being this good man with nothing negative to say about him in the Bible, as a picture of the yet-to-be-born Jesus Christ, Messiah, and how they're so similar in so many ways. And here we see a similarity where the father sends his beloved son to the wayward brothers to see how they're doing, much as God has done with Jesus for us. So he says, here I am. Verse 14, and then he said to them, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. For what it's worth, those are a couple words on the page, but that's about 60 miles north of Hebron. To put that in perspective, if you were a sheep herder in Burley, it would be taking your flock a little bit beyond American Falls from here. That's where they had drove the herds, and they didn't use trucks to transport them, right? So they're, they're a long way from home. Dad wants to know, what are they doing up there, okay? So uh, verse 15, now a certain man found him there and was... I'm sorry, now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. 
And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. They're not here, right? He gets to where they're supposed to be, where his father thought they were, and now Joseph checking on up, up on them finds out they are not where they're supposed to be, okay? You can start seeing a little bit of uh, conflict developing here. And they're up in Dothan. So that's another 15 miles northwest of Shechem. Now, Shechem is on this ridge of mountains that runs between the Mediterranean Sea and the river of the Jordan Valley. There's this ridge that runs north to south all the way through Israel. And on the Jordan River side of the valley is this highway that runs from the Middle East, ancient Persia, all the way to Egypt called the King's Highway. Then, if you go on the other side of the mountain and you go along the Mediterranean Sea coast, all the way down to Egypt. That's called the Via Maris, or by the sea, by the way of the sea. Two ancient major caravan trade routes. And then crossing from the King's Road over to the Via Maris are roads that come up like through the Valley of Jezreel, okay? There is a, another mountain pass that goes over the mountains on this major caravan route. It's called Dothan or the Dothan Pass. And that's where these guys are feeding their flocks. But now they're all the way to, say, Pocatello. They're, they're out beyond what anybody expected them to be. Nobody's going to find them. Nobody's going to come looking for them. Nobody's going to know what they're doing. You can kind of start seeing the setup for what's about to happen. Verse 18, now when they saw him, Joseph, afar off, even before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Now, what were they thinking? Why were they thinking that? You see some guy off in the distance, let's kill that guy. Well, I'm not sure that they're that dastardly. Nevertheless, uh, we do know they have it really, they hate Joseph, but I think it was his coat, right? This, this coat was a unique coat. You could say it was a dead giveaway. That's okay. <laughs> but this is how they know it's their brother that they despise. Here he is checking up, us, uh, up on us again, and we're not where we're supposed to be. We were supposed to be over there by Shechem, which is not a good place to go anyways. That's all kinds of foul stuff happens in Shechem. But they, they went to Shechem Plus, Shechem 2.0. Now they're Shechem Plus the caravan route. Let's see what's going on down, out at the interstate. Okay, and that's where they are. And they said, verse 19, they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Now, that was not a kind or positive thing that they were saying. Really, it would be translated master of dreams or prince of dreams or some guy that thinks he's pretty hot stuff because he gets all these dreams. Okay, now. I don't know about you if you ever have dreams. I've been having dreams since I was a little boy. It started out with dreams of flying, and through my lifetime, I've had all kinds of dreams, some good, some bad. And in some cases, I've had dreams of things that seem to me to be prophetic. And over time, I'm looking, wow, they've come to pass. Now, those are the kinds of things you could say to yourself, maybe that was from God. 
looks like a gift of God. Did it edify Jesus Christ? Did it edify the body of Christ? Was it uh, peaceable and good and, and, and full of the fruit of the Spirit? Well, if it is, maybe it was. But here, these guys, they despise Joseph. And even if he's got a gift from God, they don't like it. Now, remember, these are the sons of Israel. These are the tribes of Israel. And so, in some ways, it'd almost be like the church. And I'd say the church at large, not necessarily the church in this room, but gathered around the planet Earth. But it's funny how sometimes, not funny, it's sad actually, how some people will indeed be blessed by God with blessing, supernatural manifestations of God through His Holy Spirit for the building up of the body, and they get envious or jealous. I don't think that's real. I think he's faking it and all these different kinds of things. You can keep your opinion to yourself and just see, is it producing the peaceable fruit of righteousness? Is it of the Holy Spirit? But these guys, they don't want to have anything to do with what God is trying to use to bless them. And they, they mock him. Look, the dreamer is coming. Verse 20, come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Ha! Ha! It's, it, it, it harkens to an echo of um, the people gathered around the cross of Jesus Christ as he's up there dying for the sins of the world. If you really are the Christ, come down off that cross. Ha! 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 We'll see how this one turns out. Okay? Let's put him in a pit. Verse 21, but Reuben heard it. Now, remember, Reuben is the oldest brother. He's already damaged his reputation pretty poorly. Nevertheless, he is not quite Joseph. He doesn't have a robe of authority, but he is the elder. Reuben heard of it. He delivered, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. Yea, Reuben, you're doing something good. That's a positive thing on Reuben's account. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. Okay? So it's kind of a feeble rescue attempt not to see his little brother killed and to have blood on their hands. They've already had blood on their hands in Shechem with that incident with Dinah. And, and, and they're bringing all kinds of obnoxious and, and negative things to the family. And Reuben's like, let's just, we don't have to kill the guy. Just throw him in a hole, okay? A pit really would be a cistern. In the, in the Middle East, in Israel, they would take where there was just solid rock, and they would chisel, they would bore down into the solid rock what was known as a cistern. It's not a well. A well you would drill, drill down in and water would come up. But this is solid or should be solid. And then you would channel rainwater into it. So you could be back out on the um, backside of the desert, right? Around here we have guzzlers. And you might find guzzlers for uh, sage grouse or you might find guzzlers for all kinds of wildlife. And they're just set up there by the BLM. So they'll gather the rainwater and then during dry seasons, livestock, wildlife can come to them. Well, that was a cistern, and they're out here in the middle of kind of nowhere. And let, Let's go find a pit and throw them in that. That'll be a good kind of way. And Reuben's idea is, go ahead, do that, don't kill him, and then when nobody's looking, I'll hoist him out and take him back to dad. Uh, we'll get rid of him. Verse 23, so it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic 
the tunic of many colors that was on him. And again, we don't know if that actually means colors, but it's certainly unique and it certainly represents his authority. And they stripped him of his authority. Okay? And uh, then they took, away, took him away and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So apparently it hadn't been raining. And so he's not going to drown in the pit, but nevertheless, he can't get out of the pit unless somebody throws down a rope and hoists him out. Okay? Interesting, like we say Joseph and Jesus similarities, uh, Jesus also was stripped of his robes, right? And he was thrown into a prison and for a night. And, and so kind of some similarities there. Verse 25, and they sat down to eat a meal. Just shows you how callous and how hard they can be, right? While he's there languishing in this pit, they're just going to go about their business and have a nice meal. You see a little bit more information in chapter 42 when they get found out. They have a conversation amongst one another. This is later in Egypt when Joseph confronts them. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. So while they're sitting there eating their lunch, and he's in the pit, he's crying, he's hollering, please don't leave me here, please, brothers, don't do this to me. And he's just going on, and they're just having lunch. You know, there was a very sad thing in the history of the church in Germany last century. Um, there was a time when Nazism rose up in Germany. And slowly but surely, it creeped into the church. And a great deal of the church was complicit. They were part of helping the Nazis gain power. And it's told, and you can read about it in some of the different stories of people who lived during those days, there would be people at church with a railroad running near the church. And as they would be there gathered to worship, a train car would go by, and all the Jews who were bound for the death camps during the Holocaust were moaning and crying and wailing as the train went by. So they sang louder to drown out the cries. These are the kinds of things that people can do. And that's what these brothers were doing, even though he's crying out to them not to do this thing to them. They sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked. There was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So this is where they're on that caravan route from the King's Highway up over the Dothan Pass down to the Via Mara, okay? And they look up while they're having lunch. Whoa, look, it's a caravan. A bunch of Ishmaelites are coming our way, it says, um, bearing spices, balm and myrrh, and they're going to go down to Egypt. Now, Gilead is near the Jordan River, okay? So this is how we can even get the map of how they're going on their route, but they're going to Egypt. They happen to have to cross this pass to get there. Verse 26, so Judah, we just study Judah last weekend, right? Judah has some not so good things on his resume, including the whole incident with his sons and Tamar. But as Frankie pointed out, even through all of Judah's failings, and they're, they're, they're terrible, but through that, God was still able to bring about good, okay? And it's through his descendants 
uh, Zerah and Perez, through Perez, Christ, Messiah, would be born, okay? In the midst of all of that, God was still working um, through those situations. So here's Judah now, back in chapter 37, said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Hmm, that sounds like a good idea. We can make some money out of the deal here, okay? And so Judah comes up with a plan that preserves his life as well. But he's, he's doing this for profit, okay? Um, it says, then, verse 28, Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold them to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt, okay? A couple things just to bring out. If you're a Bible scholar and you're reading along, you're probably going, huh? Isn't this one of those um, discrepancies? Isn't this one of these um, controversies in the Bible where it just said it was Ishmaelites and now it says it's Midianites and the Bible's got a mistake in there? Okay, just to bring it forward, okay? We're talking about Ishmael was the son of Abraham by his um, wife's maidservant, Sarah's maidservant, um, um, Hagar, yeah, Hagar's son, Ishmael. But then the Midian, later after Sarah died, Abraham remarried a, a lady named Keturah, and they had Midian. So we're talking two different groups, okay? What we find out in this, if you start studying and deking a little deeper, that's why I'm here to help share some of these things with you. Ishmaelite, by those days, by this time, had become just a broad term for uh, any kind of caravan merchant traders. Because Ishmael, Ishmael was banished off to the east, off to the desert, and he developed this trade industry uh, basically like a trucking fleet, if you would, or something, right? But he, had, he ran a lot of camels, and over time, anybody that ran them was called an Ishmaelite. So it was basically just like a name like Kleenex. You realize Kleenex is a brand name for tissue, right? And it's actually patented. When you say Kleenex, you're calling it by a name. But what you really mean is I need a tissue, okay? Or much like uh, the Native Americans of North America, have been nicknamed Indians because Christopher Columbus thought he landed in India, okay? But nevertheless, the name stuck. That's what Ishmaelite means, basically caravan traders. Now, this particular bunch of traders were Midianites. They were trading, uh, but they were caravan traders. And so they decide to sell them, and it says for 20 shekels of silver. Kind of interesting, this one of 20 shekels of silver. Uh, 20 shekels would be equivalent of about 8 ounces. And at today's rate, silver is going for about $27 an ounce. So at today's current market price, 20 shekels of silver would be worth about $216. That's what they sold their brother for, okay? That's what they got out of the deal, okay? But at least they didn't have to wash their hands and all that. Well, maybe they did because we're going to see it a little bit further here. They do get blood on their hands, just not Joseph's, okay? But it's interesting, they sell him into slavery. 
big issue in the world today. We got all this talk about reparations and all this talk in our, of being guilty for whatever happened 200 years ago and all this kind of stuff and slavery and, and, and slavery issues. They're real issues. I'm not saying they're not real issues. But just to kind of get a picture on what some of this is all about, in the world today, slavery is alive and well, if I can use that word. It's going strong in the world today. Uh, estimates are about 40.3 million people are owned, sold, in human trafficking. They're slaves on the planet today. The eight worst offenders in the world today are China, Eritrea, that's along the Horn of Africa right there on the Red Sea, terrible, despicable place. It's nicknamed the North Korea of Africa. Iran, North Korea, surprise, surprise, Russia, Sudan, Syria, and Venezuela, right, are notorious for owning people, slaves. The one that blows my mind is Venezuela. Just 20 years ago, it was the most prosperous, strongest democracy in South America until Maduro took power and just crashed the whole place, and slavery's running rampant, okay? Um, now, just to put this in perspective, from 1526, 1526 to 1867, from the 1600s to the 1900s, about 13 million people total were slaves on the planet, okay? Um, and it's interesting in that, you compare that to the 40.3 million today, not over like five years, today, 40 million compared to 13 million over 400 years. And it's kind of interesting. We look at slavery and often we think of African slaves, right? Although we recognize that before Columbus ever landed on this continent, one Native American tribe was keeping slaves of another Native American tribe and, and the Genghis Khan and, and the Chinese and everybody's been doing it. It's part of the human condition. But when it comes to the African slaves, um, uh, there were about 10.7 million that came to the Americas, about 12 million total, um, 13 million, I should say, in that 400-year period. But you should know that 90% of those slaves ended up in the Caribbean and South America. And 6% ended up in British North America, and that was during a time period of about 1720 to 1870. Just to get some realistic ideas on what is the history in our community, in our nation of slaves and, and, and that kind of a thing. It's not as huge as some would tell you. And yet, in some ways, even one is too many, right? But I say in some ways, it's kind of interesting in that. Um, during Jesus' day, Rome was about 40% slave, and about 10% of the Roman Empire were slaves. There were about 5.5 million slaves in Jesus' day in the Roman Empire. And yet we have books like the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, that discuss how masters should treat their slaves and slaves should behave to their masters. It's actually the Bible gives you, you know, basically Bible basics for being a good Christian slave. Okay? A book of Philemon in the Bible is dedicated to a slave owner whose slave ran away to Rome 
and ended up meeting Paul, the apostle. Paul shared Jesus Christ with them. He was converted to Christianity. He became a believer. And as a believer, Paul told Onesimus, you got to go back to your owner. I'll give you a letter. It's the letter of Philemon. And in that letter, Paul urges Philemon to take good care of Onesimus. Okay, it's funny. Onesimus' name means worthless. But he says he's become very precious and very valuable to me now that he's a Christian. Okay, so there are records and documents in the scriptures of slavery. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has this to say. At verse 42, he, re- he says, But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. We know that. Yet, it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And if you're not quite sure the interpretation of the word servant, Jesus clarifies, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. Did you hear that? Jesus just commanded his believers, his followers, that we should voluntarily be a slave to the world. The word is bond servant, doulos in the Greek, that we should be so in love with Jesus Christ that we want to be like him. He says, whoever you desires to be first shall be slave of all, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, why am I going off on this tangent about slavery? A, because it's real. It's something that we need to deal with head on, and yet the scriptures deal with it as a sad but real fact of humanity. It's our human nature, okay? (laughs) Look at the brothers, how they treat one another, right? Throwing him in a pit and selling him into slavery, and it's going on into this world today, and yet I've encouraged us as we go through the life of Joseph, remember, there is nothing negative said about Joseph. In spite of all these things, Joseph sees Jesus. Joseph sees God. Joseph looks through eyes of faith every step of the way. I'm a slave? Okay, I'm going to be the best slave. That's the response of a heart surrendered to God. So it's kind of, it's, it's just mind-boggling when you look at all these things. Verse 29, Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. So obviously, Reuben, I don't know, went out for fast food, something. And when he comes back, his brother's not in the pit anymore. What happened? And he tore his clothes. This is a sign of terrible anguish. It's just, oh, my world is just torn apart. He's the big brother. Who's going to get in trouble when Joseph shows up missing? He is, right? That's why we don't want to kill him. Let's just put him in a pit. He comes back. He's not in the pit, and he's beside himself. Now he's the one crying, okay? And he returned to his brother and said, the lad is no more, and where shall I go? I'm ruined, okay? Again, thinking more about himself than the lad, you know? Not like, oh, no, my poor brother. It's like, oh, no, poor me, okay? Verse 31, Then they took Joseph's tunic and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know where it is? 
whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. Actually, it's going to be 22 years before Jacob sees Joseph again. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Just, it's just dastardly. It's despicable. Remember, I told you, we're looking for Jesus in Genesis. We're looking for the light of the world. We're looking for hope. We're looking for joy. We want to set our eyes on Christ. And yet we're going to have to look pretty hard through all the, all the stuff that these people are doing, right? The story gets worse and worse. It just spirals down. And the deeper and deeper and darker it gets, actually, with eyes of faith, the easier it is to see Christ, right? I could light a match right here, and you might not see it from me. But if we turn off the lights, that's the only thing you can see. Sometimes it's not dark enough for us yet. (laughs) Think about that one for a minute and then get grateful (laughs) that it's not that dark yet, okay? But poor Jacob, right? He's lost his son, and these brothers, just how wicked and cruel, and they are going to keep this secret from their father for 22 years. It's a messed up family. Verse 36, now the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, and a captain of the guard. And so he is sold. He ends up in Egypt. I'm going to go through this next section really fast. It's going to pick up at verse 39. We're going to skip chapter 38. That's what Frankie gave the life of Judah. In the meantime, while Joseph was being sold, Judah's over here doing that, right, with his sons and with Tamar. And yet in that, light shines. In that, the lineage of Jesus Christ comes forward. But now we pick up in verse 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So he ended up in a pretty good situation. He was working for royalty or a high government official. This had been during the time of the Hiskos dynasty, 17800 B.C., And he's working for the Pharaoh. Pharaoh in the Egyptian literally refers to a great house or a dynasty. And Pharaoh is just a title of the head of the house. That's basically what Pharaoh means, head of the house. And now this guy works directly for him. He's chief officer of the guard. He's kind of like the CIA, um, the boss, the chief of police that watches over Pharaoh and those kinds of things. So he's not in a terrible, bad situation. Verse 2, and the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Notice this, the Lord was with Joseph. We're going to see that three times in this chapter, here in verse 2, and then verse 21 and verse 23. It's a theme that runs through all of this. It's dark. It's terrible. It's wicked. It's bad. And the Lord was with Joseph, okay? And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did prosper in his hand. Think about this. Does your boss see that the Lord is with you? Do your kids see that the Lord is with you? Does the community know that you walk with Jesus? This is something that was evident in the way Joseph carried himself, the way he lived his life. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. 
just like Jesus came to serve us. Then he made him an overseer of his house and that he had all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from that time that he had made him an overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. This is fantastic. It's fulfillment of a prophecy that God spoke to Abraham that you will be a blessing to all nations. And now this is happening. And this is Egypt, which at the time would have been the world power, the ruling world power, the empire of Egypt. And yet Egypt, the world superpower, is blessed because of this little Hebrew boy. That's how God can work when we get out of the way and let him do that. Verse 6, thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. So Joseph just did good. Wherever he went, he did good. It didn't matter the circumstances. The idea was I'm going to take what you've given me, and I'm going to turn it to good. I'm just going to, I'm going to use whatever God's gifted me with, whatever my talents are, and I'm going to give it unto the Lord. I'm going to serve as unto the Lord. And because of that, everybody saw that he loved the Lord, that he worshiped Yahweh God, the God of the Jews, the God of the Israelites, and, and that it was because of this, everybody was getting blessed, and he was like, wow, everybody, you know, they liked it, and so he gave him control of everything. It says Potiphar didn't have a clue what was going on in his whole estate, his whole dynasty, other than, okay, there's food on the table, thank you. That's all he knew, and Joseph took care of the rest of it. And it also says that... Um, he was handsome in form and appearance, which is to say he was a hunk. <laughs> Whatever that means in that day and age, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And as you look through different epochs of time or different cultures, different physical appearances work or don't work depending on where you are at that time in history. But wherever it was, there Joseph was a looker. Uh, that, and it plays into the story here. He didn't have anything to do with that. He didn't have anything to do that he was born by his mother Rachel. He didn't have anything to do that he was good in all that he did. He didn't have anything to do that he had the gift of administration. He knew how to run things well. He didn't have anything to do with the fact that his father gave him a coat of many colors. He didn't have anything to do with any of those things. Those were all blessings that were just showered upon him. But he took it all and turned it to God. So he's good looking. And he's in Potiphar's house. Thus he had all, the, uh, and verse 7, and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me, okay? Temptation, okay? A seductress comes in. A uh, book of Proverbs is full of stuff on this, and to beware. Proverbs 5, verses 1 through 6. Proverbs 6, 24 through 29. Proverbs 7, 6 through 23, just to get a couple things, and uh, especially for the young folk, um, but it all of us. The, the story of uh, Solomon, right? Don't multiply to your house self, horses, silver, or women. And he had over a thousand wives and 400 concubines. He just ruined his life. And Samson and Delilah, and the, the list goes on and on. David and Bathsheba, and all of these things that God says, don't go there. But you don't have to go there. There will come here. Okay, don't think Satan's going to give you a pass. It comes to your door. It comes through your internet. It comes across your TV. It's up on the billboards. It's out in the public square. It's everywhere you go. Temptation. And 
This particular one happens to be sexual immorality, but it could be a whole host of other things that the devil would use to play you with. In this case, Joseph is good-looking, Potiphar's wife doing what is customary. It's common. Everybody's doing it. In the Egyptian society, says, you're my slave. Lie with me. Look at his response, though, and this is so cool. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has had to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? Anybody got a Bible? Did I misspeak? How can I do this great evil and sin against God? When you think God's not looking, no, God sees. And Joseph knew that because Joseph had a relationship with God. Joseph had faith in God. Joseph believed in God. Joseph lived for God. Joseph served God. And he knew everything he did was unto the Lord, and he can't do this unto the Lord. The Lord will know. It doesn't matter that we could cover it up. The brothers covered up this, this treachery for 22 years, but Joseph's heart says, I can't do that. I can't be that person. I can't do that. There's no one greater in the house. Can I, how can I do this great sin and sin against God? All sin is against God. I just want to really quickly read out of Psalm 51 where David is confronted by Nathan the prophet. He's confronted with this sin of lying with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and then having Uriah killed and having this child born to them and having to come clean. Nathan calls him out on it. And David writes in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression. And my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. This is where it starts. You've got to get real with God. You've got to confess. You've got to admit it and quit it. Okay? You've got to confess and you've got to repent. But as you do, He will be faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But you've got to be real with God because He already knows you're not hiding anything from Him. David goes on in verse 10 of Psalm 51 to write, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. We've got a program at the church. We call it Pure Word. And that's exactly what happens in Pure Word. You confess it. You repent of it. You glorify God. And then you tell others that are trapped in that sin, there's a way out. There's forgiveness. You can have a clean heart. You don't have to live in the fear, in the shame, in the guilt anymore. God has made a way, but you're going to have to come clean with Him. But if you will, hallelujah, you're free. And that fits every one of us in this room. And I know there are some of us that probably have history, and we have things that we're not going to talk about. Okay? We're not. We don't need to. Those sins have been buried. As far as east is from west, God's not bringing them up anymore. If you have confessed them, they've been cleaned off your slate. If they come up again, it's because the devil 
wants to bring it up or because you in some sort of weird way bring it up and you should just leave it in your past. But here David says, cleanse me, make me new, okay? And so here's Joseph, how can I sin against God? So it was as she spoke to Joseph by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. So this goes on for a while. In fact, if you do the math, and uh, when Joseph becomes the regent, the second, the vicar, or whatever you want to say, in charge, vice president, under Pharaoh, he's 30 years old. We'll read that in chapter 41. And he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. Some, somewhere between 18 and about 11 years, he's in Potiphar's house. He gets arrested. He's in prison with the, the, the two, the baker and the butler for two years, and then he's made king. So this takes 11 years. 11 years of dealing with this pressure, this temptation, this woman trying to seduce him. And he says, no, 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 no. Okay, it's not going to necessarily be easy. It's not going to go away, but you can win. You can conquer this. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, we're taught, taught to flee these youthful lusts. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, see, what was that? 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. So you can't just say, I didn't know better or that I'm ignorant of it. But one who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. That's us, Christian. It says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Run. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul says the same thing to Timothy when he writes to him in 1 Timothy. He says, flee youthful lusts, run. And that's exactly what Joseph does. It happened about this time, when, verse 11, when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. When you're dealing with whatever this temptation is that you have, run. Turn the other way and run. It's not cowardice to run away from the devil. If you stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil, he's taking you out. You're a fool if you think you can do that. You need to run and get behind Jesus Christ. Turn the other way and just get out of Dodge, okay? That's the way you deal with it. The other way you deal with it is you die to yourself. Temptation and sin has no power over a dead man. You need to die to yourself and live to Christ, okay? And this is what Joseph is doing uh, he ran outside, and so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, so now she's going to turn tables on him. See, she's probably been thinking about this eight, eleven years, right? See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us, okay? Now she's throwing in racism, a racial slur. She's talking down about him from his lineage, his ethnicity, from his race. She says, you brought in a Hebrew to 
uh, mock us. Okay, and if you go back to um, when uh, Noah came off the ark, there was Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and we remember that they spread out in different parts of the world. The descendants of Ham came to Egypt. The descendants that came through Abraham went into Israel, that area. They were the Shemites. And so this is this, this hatred, this animosity between the Hamites and the Shemites blowing up. This is what's going on here. It's, it's racially motivated. It says, uh, he came to mock us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, and he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. So she's basically set him up. It's a trap, and she's working on a way to get even with him. There are ways to protect yourself against this. Billy Graham, when he had his Billy Graham Crusades, he set this up for the Billy Graham organization that everybody would actually sign if they were a member that these are the policies they would follow. And uh, one of them had to do with never, ever being alone with the person of the opposite sex unless it was your wife or children, okay? You never would do that, right? And that's a policy we hold at the church, You'll never see me counsel a woman by myself, ever, never. I'll never be in my office by myself with another woman. Men counsel men, women counsel women. That's the way it is. So ladies, you want some counseling. Pastor, can you counsel me? Let me see what my wife's doing. Maybe she's not busy. We can talk. And if it needs more than one meeting, you're going to get referred to somebody else, Michelle or somebody, you know, somebody that can counsel you, okay? I'm not going to be counseling women. That's just, it's uh, wisdom, right? It protects both people's reputation. You know, I've seen it happen before. These setups, people come in with the idea that somehow they want to take you down, and they will set up circumstances. So you have to be careful with that. But not just that, on the Internet. Put filters on your internet. They're available. Many of them are free. Get them on your internet so that these people can't come walking into your house, okay? Um, keep doors open at all times. Never be in a room with the door closed with somebody from the opposite sex. Beware of setups, okay, in all of this. And even at the church, we have uh, basically what we, we do, side hugs, right? You want to hug somebody of the opposite sex, a side hug. You don't do one of these kind, okay? Guys, you want to grab and hug each other, I don't care. But girl to girl, guy to guy, but if it's men, we don't, we don't go there. And I would even say, if you don't know a person on a first-name basis, you probably should be shaking their hands and saying, hi, my name's Mike, what's your name? And get to a first-name basis so you can hug them and be brothers and sisters in the Lord, right? But we just want to have everything appropriate. So... Verse 17, then she spoke with him uh, when her master came home. She spoke to him with words like these saying, the Hebrew servant, okay, slamming him, whom you brought to us, blaming her husband, came in to mock me, right? So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So she throws racial slurs around. She blazes her husband and she frames Joseph. Verse 19, so it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, your servant did it to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. He was in a rage, right? Which, yeah, rightfully any husband probably would be, ought to be, should be. We should be jealous for our spouse. That's our job, okay? Your J-O-B man is to take care and protect your wife. And somebody crosses that, that's, that's, that's 
game. <laughs> That's open territory. What's interesting in this, and it did say he's an officer two times, officer of Pharaoh. That word for officer in the Old Testament is a word that is often translated as eunuch, okay? In those days, in those cultures, it was very common that people in a high position within these dynasties would be um, castrated to become a eunuch so they could not have any children. Therefore, with no opportunity to pass along any kind of inheritance or dynasty, there was no te temptation for embezzlement and pilfering and, and stealing the kingdom away from your boss because there's nothing you could do with that. So this was common. It was so common... Um, that may or may not would have been, it's now come to the point where any eunuch is just considered an official. But maybe this plays into the situation. Maybe he and his wife aren't having the relationships that she would like or he would like, and he's really angry that this has happened. I almost have a, a hunch in my heart, somebody planted it in my mind once when I was listening to a Bible study, but I'm wondering if he's not more mad at his wife than he is at Joseph. He knows what his wife's like. This is probably not his first rodeo, okay? And I'm sure he's probably upset, but he's got to do something. He's got to save face. Verse 19, so it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, your servant did to me after this manner that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took and put him in the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined as he was there in prison, okay? So angry with Joseph or angry with his wife, it doesn't really matter. He throws him into the king's prison. Now, technically, he should have killed Joseph, but he didn't. He spared his life, which is one of the reasons that makes you think maybe he really is more mad at his wife. He was, if he was really mad at Joseph, he would have just off with his head and it'd be over, okay? But he throws him in the king's prison, and it's interesting the king's prison, that's not just your standard prison with all the um, hooligans. This is like club fed, okay? It's the king's prison. It's a nice place. It's not a bad place to be. Um, and much better to be club fed than dead, right? And so look what happens. Verse 21, I told you about it. It's coming back again. But the Lord was with Joseph. That's the key to all of this. It's the key to the whole story of Joseph. It's the key to my life. It's the key to the Bible. It's the key to understanding what in the world is going on. God is on the throne. God is in control. God looks upon every single one of us. He knows all the hairs on your head. He knows all the days of your life. And here it says, and God or the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Wow. Everywhere Joseph go goes, it seems like everything turns to gold. Joseph just does good, and, and that favor spreads wherever he ends up. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. It's repeated again. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. I just love that. Worship team, come on up. That's the secret. It's wide open. It's not a secret. It's right there in the Bible. It's been there for thousands of years. Anybody can read it, but that's the secret. The Lord was with Joseph. Joseph was with the Lord. Joseph was a man of God. Joseph feared God. Joseph loved God. Joseph served God. Joseph took every situation that he came and he walked by faith. He saw things through the eyes of faith, the substance of things hoped for. Are you in the middle 
of a pit? Have you been disowned by your family? Have you been sold into slavery? Probably not. Your life probably isn't near as bad as Joseph. Have you been accused of rape? Have you been imprisoned falsely? What are you going to do? Look up. Pray up. Worship up. Have that faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence. There's actual evidence of things not seen. I know God loves me. I know God has a plan for me to prosper me. I know God has a way through this. And if I'll just walk according to his spirit, he'll show me that way. And not only will I come out of this on the other side, the better for it, I'll bring many with me alive. That's the story of Joseph. Father God, I want to thank you for Joseph. And, the, and even in the darkness, as we look into the world today, we look at the headlines, we look at the economy, we look at the culture, and it seems like we're just swirling deeper and deeper into confusion and darkness. And yet, Lord, as we just open up your word, you become brighter and clearer and much more present and real. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on you, that not only will we never lose our way, but that we can bless others in our journey. Whatever circumstance we might find ourselves in right now, we know you're here. We know that you do hear us and that you answer prayer. So, Lord Jesus, have your way with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.